gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting over disaster, this God shows his character to be exactly all of those qualities and attributes that Joel describes. And so God sees the heart of his people turning back to him uh, properly and truly returning, truly repentant. And so in verse 18 of chapter 2, it tells us that the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And so he doesn't just stop with a relenting either. Even though the description of God tells us he's a God who relents over disaster, he doesn't just stop at just saying, okay, I'm going to take away the plague, the plague is over. It tells us that he also sends a double portion of rain in a single month to restore the crops and allow the people to be flourishing once more. And so he gives them back everything that they have lost. And, and he even gives in such abundance and such grace which the people obviously didn't deserve. You know, they had turned their backs. They, they had failed on their part of their commitment to God. But God even promises them in verse 25 to restore the years that were lost in the plague and famine as well. Such an incredible response, such an incredible act of grace and kindness on the Lord's part. And really, this gracious giving could be seen as a foretaste of the ultimate gift that Jesus gives each of us by his sacrifice on the cross. So we look at this incredible abundance, this, this withholding and relenting from disaster, and we can apply it uh, in the future time of the New Testament to the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, through his work on the cross, he is a God who relents over disaster and is gracious and slow to anger. So what the book of Joel, it's, it's an old, old Testament book, and I hope we know that by now. We've been studying through it for four weeks. I hope you know it's in the Old Testament. Uh, but it shows us today in our postmodern culture that God is truly unchanging. The God of the Bible is immutable. And the reason that is so important for us today is that we can have assurance of faith that God's promises will always come back fulfilled. Right? His promises never return void, never throughout history, and never into the future will they return void. And he gives us a hope that is eternal and a peace that surpasses our human understanding, as scripture tells us, and a joy that will remain even in the darkest and coldest moments and chapters of our lives. It's an incredible blessing to know that. So as we jump in here, chapter 3 this morning, um, before we get into it, it's important to know that five times in three chapters, the prophet Joel uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. First time is in Joel chapter 1 verse 15. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty comes. Again, a couple, three times in, the, in chapter 2, he says, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And again he says, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? And at the end of chapter 2, he says, The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And as we'll see this morning in chapter 3, he says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So the day of the Lord usually identifies or uh, is identified with an event or events of the, of the end of history where God intervenes and accomplishes his plan and purpose. The New Testament refers to the day of the Lord as a day of wrath, as a day of visitation, and a great day of God Almighty. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. And it's also a time when the Lord delivers a believing Israel from her enemies. It's where the nations of the earth gather to fight and battle against God. 
The prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 2, verse 17 of his book, that in, the day, in, the, in this day of the Lord, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In our present time, we see the opposite of that right now, don't we? We see the haughtiness of man is elevated, the pride of man is on display, but it tells us in that day, in the day of the Lord, that the Bible says that the Lord alone will be exalted. And so this morning we conclude our study through Joel, now in chapter 3, and this final chapter begins with a pronouncement of the judgment upon the nations, which will be the day of the Lord. So before we begin, I just want to pray one more time over the scripture and over our study of it. Dear Heavenly Father, I just give this morning to you. I just ask that you would reveal your truth and your heart and your love to us this morning. We know that your word uh, just is, is always living and breathing, Lord, and we still have purpose for it today. And I just pray that we would see that truth revealed to us this morning, that it would bring us hope, and also uh, just understanding this, this coming day of the Lord and the wrath that will ensue. Lord, I just ask that you would reveal in our hearts where we stand on that day. In your name we pray. Amen. So Joel chapter 3 begins in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So Joel begins by giving us some insight into this timing of this particular event. He says it'll be in those days, which obviously means in the future. But when exactly? He explains that when the captives will be brought back into the land. And so if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you know that Israel was taken out of their uh, bondage in Egypt. They eventually entered into the promised land known as Canaan. And then they had been told long before they even arrived by God not to worship any other gods or idols um, that, that would be part of the surrounding nations. They're also instructed and warned of the consequences of such idolatry would be displacement from their land and dispersion throughout other nations. Sadly, as, as you, you may know, uh, they did not listen or take heed of uh, the warnings of God. And because of their idolatry, the northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 733 BC. And the southern tribes of Judah, which should have really learned the lesson from their northern brothers um, to turn from their sin, they don't do so, though. They don't, they don't listen or they don't take the example by the northern kingdoms. They, they continue to live in their sin. And they also commit idolatry, and they're carried into captivity into Babylon for 70 years, beginning in the year 607 B.C. And so after those 70 years that they're in captivity with Babylon, and we're taking a little history lesson real quick, the world-dominating powers had changed, and Cyrus became king. And when he became king, he sent uh, the uh, nation of Judah back into their land to rebuild their walls, to rebuild their temple, and essentially to rebuild their lives. But however, it tells us that in A.D. 70, after Jesus had come uh, and done his ministry on earth, that the Jews were once again scattered across the known world by the Romans, and they ceased to exist as a nation of Israel. This could really be the valley of dry bones that the prophet Ezekiel foresaw. If you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, he talks about this valley of dry bones that he sees. And scattered bones would be a representation of the dead and scattered nation of Israel. But in the book of Israel, he commands Ezekiel to speak to the bones, and they arise, and they come together, and he says that the muscle and the flesh rejoin uh, these, these skeletons, and they see the bodies once more as fully uh, together and fully intact. So if you recall back to May 14th, 1948, 
when the United Nations, they declared that the nation of Israel was once again recognized as a people, as their own nation. This is really incredibly miraculous if you think about uh, all the years that took place between A.D. 70 and 1948 and all the things that happened throughout history that these people were once more brought back and recognized as a nation. Hundreds and hundreds, actually over thousands of years, they've been scattered, no longer a nation. And never before has it occurred in history where a people has been dispersed for this long that they came back together again to form a nation once more. But this was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, perhaps foreseen in the book of Ezekiel. And to this day, the Jewish people still migrate back to their land. Over all these generations where they've been dispersed throughout the entire world, some of them are still coming back into the nation of Israel. So Israel's back in the land, which means that the day of the Lord means a future judgment that is yet to come and will take place, obviously, in our future. But I believe that we are in the last days. Uh, the last days in the Bible really started when the church was born. The last days are really not so much just like the end of the end of the days. It's more or less an era of time, and it started with the apostolic church in the book of Acts. And so I believe we're, we're still in that era, but it does seem as if we're moving closer and closer to the day of the Lord. If we look at all the destruction and, and uh, darkness around us in this world... But why will this judgment take place? Why is there a judgment that the Lord has to uh, put down on the earth? Well, let's continue reading the book of Joel. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2 now. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. Now, first of all, notice that it says the nations will be gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, right now, there is no such thing as a valley of Jehoshaphat. However, it's important to know that the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So, therefore, the valley that Joel alludes to in the future is more likely the valley where the battle of Armageddon will take place, the valley of the Lord's judgment. Now, there's several reasons why this judgment will occur. He tells us here, number one, the people have been scattered. Number two, the land has been divided. And number three, the depravity of man is so bad. And he gives the example. You look at, notice a boy is traded for a harlot. A girl is given for wine. You think about how awful is that, right? I know that even on the very worst days, your children <laughs> that you have, you would never even think about, never come across your mind to trade them for a drink of wine or a harlot. It, it's a disgusting and horrible and such a dark, dark time. And the Lord says that there's judgment coming as a result of the sins of the nations. This verse, however, though, it, it eerily reminds me a lot of human trafficking, more specifically, child trafficking. It's sickening, really. It really is sickening what goes on in this world, isn't it? I mean, you think of all the news and all the, all the darkness. You think, how in the world can such depravity exist? How can people be so dark? I know that we all struggle with sin and, and selfishness and pride and all, and all these certain things that can well up inside us, but how can people be so dark as to do that to children and, and to other adults, frankly, anybody? It's horrible. And you know, I think we can sometimes put America on a pedestal, but we're not immune to the trafficking trade either, guys. It's all throughout the world. We live in a deplorable time. And all the things that go around us, this hatred and evil in the hearts of man, I can't, I can't imagine we're really that far off from the likes of, of Sodom and Gomorrah as we see in the book of Genesis, right? We can't be that far off. 
Surely God is a God of justice. Have you ever gotten to a point in your prayers where you see such depravity and sin in man and you say, God, where are you? You know, you, you have to be coming soon. This, this, you can't allow this to go on. You're a God of justice and yet this is happening. And we see stuff like that and that, that kind of prayer can take place. You may, you may also remember that Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus had a very strong heart for children, as you can see, as we, as we all should. But notice the rebellious response of this coming judgment in verse 4. He says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? This is God speaking. If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. So the Lord poses a question, Are you going to retaliate against me? Are you really opposing me right now? And the Lord tells us the reason for their judgment is because they have robbed God of what is rightfully his. And in verse 5, he continues. Notice how many times the Lord uses the word my. He uses it three times in this verse. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and you have carried my rich treasures into your temples. And he continues he's by saying, you have sold, you could say my people, sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So when the nation of Israel was displaced, the Babylonians came down. And when they came, they, they took all the precious and valuable treasure that Solomon had stored up, that Solomon had, had uh, made. And so the Babylonians took all these treasures into their own temples with their own gods. And at one point after Nebuchadnezzar had died, his great-grandson was ruling in his place. And right before Babylon would fall, they brought all of these vessels, all of these, these treasures that they had stored up from when they overtook Israel, and they brought them into this, this temple of theirs to their other gods while they were having this party and decided to use these trinkets, as it were, as silverware. They're using God's, God's uh, treasures as silverware in their party towards their gods. And so as they begin to praise their own gods, God's hand writes on the wall in the temple, many, many, tekel, and parson. And so they all see this. The king has no idea what it means. And so he brings Daniel, who is now very old. This is not, he's the same Daniel from Daniel in the Lions then, but he's much older now. And he asks him, essentially, what does this mean? Can you tell me what it means? If you can tell me, I'll give you this, this gold necklace, this gold chain. And you know, Daniel essentially says, you can keep the chain. I'll tell you what it says. And he says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, or Parson, the, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And so that very evening, judgment came upon Babylon. And, and the king of Babylon was, was, was killed that day, or that evening. And they, but they were judged because they took what belonged to God, took what was rightfully his. They took his treasures, his valuables, his people, and they wasted them. And God said, for that to your judgment, I will bring judgment upon you. Let's continue in verse 7 here. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah. This is God speaking once more to the nations he will judge. And they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. So ultimately, this verse is another way of saying... What they have sown, they will ultimately reap, right? They took God's people and sold them and dispersed them throughout the land of God, saying, now that my people are going to do the same to you. They're reaping what they sow. And when we come to thinking about, about sowing and reaping, we have to understand that this is a natural law. 
Right, for example, when, when you sow carrot seeds into the ground and you, you water them and care for them, you harvest carrots, right? I mean, it's, it's a natural thing. Likewise, with tomato seeds, you reap tomatoes. Um, you're not going to reap uh, corn from a tomato seed. I, I encourage you to try it, see if you can pull it off. It would be pretty amazing. Um, but it just doesn't happen, right? We, we reap what we sow, right? Whatever we put into the ground, that's what we'll reap if we harvest it and take care of it. So there's a natural law there. But it's more than just a natural law, it's also a spiritual law. It's something that the Bible also tells us about in Galatians chapter 6. It says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So whatever you're sowing to this morning, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's of the spirit, whether it's of the flesh, you're going to reap something at some point in time. It's, it's a promise by God. You're going to reap something. And if you're sowing to the flesh, it tells us all the, you know, all the fleshly desires, all the fleshly appetites, all the sins uh, in this world, at some point you're going to reap a harvest of corruption or of, of destruction. It happens in people's lives all the time. But there's encouragement for us that it also applies in the positive way. If you continue to sow into God's word, sow into his spirit, sow into the things that please God, sowing into your marriage, sowing into your children, whatever it may be, sowing into the ministry, God promises that we will reap a harvest there as well. And so ultimately this morning the question comes down to what kind of harvest do you want? Right? And, and, and does what you, the harvest that you want, does that line up with what you are sowing to, to today? To the, what, are you, what are you sowing to this morning? Is it lining up with, with what you want to reap? Because guys, if, you're, if your desire is to reap the harvest of the Spirit, but you're sowing to the flesh, it, it won't happen. It can't happen. Right? If there's a spiritual law at play, there's a natural law at play. You cannot sow to the flesh and reap the Spirit. It doesn't happen. So if you desire to reap the Spirit, the benefits of the Spirit, you must also sow to the Spirit. So whatever you sow, that will you reap. And that's exactly what we see here with the enemies of Israel. Now following this announcement of a coming judgment in verses 1 through 8, it's now followed by a preparation for this coming judgment in verses 9 through 12. He says, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now through the prophet Joel, God now issues his, to his people a call to battle. In verse 10, you can actually see the reverse of the command that's found in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4, if you're familiar with those verses, where he tells uh, the nation to fashion their spears and swords into agricultural tools. He's telling them all these uh, items they have prepared for war, turn them into something else, we're not going into war right now. Now he's telling you all these agricultural tools you have, beat them into uh, weapons of war, we're going into battle to prepare for war. So what we see here in the Old Testament uh, ties in with the New Testament. Joel is saying that God is calling them into battle. And Revelation 16 also reveals how they come to battle. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and in its water had dried up. 
to prepare for the way of the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So how are these people convinced to set themselves up against the Lord? Isn't that an incredible mindset to be in? Where you say, I'm going to bring my sword, wherever I'm going to bring, I'm going to oppose the Lord. <laughs> How do you get into that mindset where you think you can possibly win that battle, for one, and two, actually show up, you know, I'm going to go fight this battle because I can beat the Lord. But it tells us right here, it tells us that demonic spirits go out and convince them, right? So they're deceived into thinking that they have a chance in this battle, and they, that they're deceived into thinking that what they're fighting for is right. And so these nations gather to fight against God, and God will judge the nations of the world. It's a really interesting. This, this section also reminds me of Psalm chapter 2. I know we're jumping around a lot today. Um, you don't have to necessarily turn there. We'll have them back here. But seeing how this, this Old and New Testament come together is, is really cool. Uh, it says, Why do the nations rage, in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So it says that the nations are gathering and they're trying to break every restraint against the Lord. And so this is the Lord's response to this in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the nations will gather to fight against God out of deception, and it tells us that the Lord will laugh, and then he will bring judgment, swift judgment, upon them. Now looking at Joel 3.13, we find here that the judgment that comes from the nations is likened to an agricultural metaphor, right? Of taking a sickle and putting it into the ground for harvest. Back to Joel 3, verses 13 through 14, he says, I put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So here Joel tells us that when the the Lord will judge the nations, it's going to be as easy as a farmer essentially squashing grapes. Right? He's saying that he's going to take his sickle and just reap the harvest of, the, of, the, of all the nations that have done evil and putting like grapes into a wine press. And there's so much evil, it tells us, that the harvest of judgment overflows the proverbial vats. Right? There's so much evil that needs to be harvested, that needs to be wiped away, that it's saying that it's overflowing these vats. Now once more, we're going to cross over, cross-reference into the New Testament in Revelation 14 this time, and see the similarities of Joel 3 in Revelation 14. Uh, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung a sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 
if you're interested in how deep or how tall and how long, high as a horse's bridle is approximately four feet. 1600 stadia is approximately 184 miles. So a river of blood is flowing for 184 miles, four feet deep, out of the judgment of God. It's rather terrifying to think about. And he, he likens it to a wine press overflowing. So the grapes flowing from the wine press is like that of the blood of his enemies. So it's really a, a different picture than we ever have seen of Jesus, isn't it? You know, typically we, we see Jesus as um, as the Savior who came to this world to, to save us, right? To give us a second chance and to love. And but this isn't the you know this isn't the first time that Jesus came. The first time he came, right? He, it tells us that he poured out his blood, right? He was a sacrifice to all people, all nations. He shed his blood for the sins of the world, and yet men rejected him. Men continued to live wickedly and reject him and do evil throughout the earth and and shed innocent blood. So it tells us the second time he is coming back, it's not his blood that is going to be shed, but it's theirs. So it's a radical picture of Jesus, seeing him bring judgment to the earth. So this is a harvest of judgment that Joel describes, and it's their incredible impact. And there's really an incredible impact as a result of this harvest of judgment. Back to Joel, verses 15 and 16 now. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Let's pause here for a moment. So here he says that the cosmos themselves will be affected by the Lord's coming. The heavens and the earth will shake by the sound of his voice. And the prophet Isaiah had something very similar to say in this regard to the day of the Lord in his book in verse 13, or chapter 13. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So Isaiah said the same thing that Joel said prophetically. But you know who else also said this? Jesus. <laughs> It's recorded here in Matthew 24. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He explains that stars are falling, the earth and the heavens are shaking, the sun no longer is giving its light in the day of the Lord. And again, Revelation 6 also says something similar. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became as black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. I'm here to tell you this morning, this isn't some fairy tale, guys. This isn't some myth, some future legend that is just kind of talked about or a scare tactic to making you believe into God's word it should scare you but that's not the purpose of it it's not a tactic here by the God's word to scare us into believing I don't believe what we see here guys is biblical prophecy and prophecies in in scripture have been coming to fruition time and time again Uh, hundreds upon hundreds of uh, prophecies on Jesus alone have already come to pass more are still coming to pass And what we're seeing right here is biblical prophecy at the end of days. We see that Isaiah said it. We see that the prophet Joel said it. We see that Jesus even said it. And lastly, Revelation reveals it. And as frightening as it sounds and as frightening as it will be, I love verse 6. And in all its awe and all its beauty, it doesn't end 
where we left off, right? It concludes by saying these last two lines. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So during that time in the day of the Lord, there are going to be people who are converted in the last days who will remain on earth during the tribulation. Okay, I'm talking, I believe that the rapture occurs. Those who believe will be taken and and ascend into heaven. And those who do not believe will be left on earth to to face the Lord's judgment. But some of those left on earth will believe in the Lord. And the reason I believe this, um, if you you know, I know there's always the argument post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, where do you stand? The reason for my belief in that is, why would he judge his people who have placed their faith in him as well, right? Why, why would we be judged alongside the very people that have, have gone against him, right? And I'd love to go into more detail with you guys at another time, or if you want to talk to me afterwards, I'd be happy to do so. But it tells us that there's going to be people who have placed their faith in him after the rapture takes place that are going to be on earth, and many of them will be killed for their faith. But it also tells us that the Lord is a refuge to his people in this time, this battle of Armageddon and a stronghold to the people of Israel. This verse tells us that the Lord will cover his people in protection and be a safe house for them. But I also love this verse's applicability to us today, right? It tells us that the Lord is a refuge to his people. And just let that line, just let that part of scripture sink in this morning for you, if you're struggling, you know, that the Lord is a refuge to his people. I find that incredibly encouraging this morning, right? When life is hard, when things are are just going against everything that you're doing, when you're feeling low, when you are just emotionally and spiritually and physically and mentally just exhausted at the end of your your rope, right? Where do you turn? Where do you go in, in times like that? If you placed your faith in Jesus, there's an incredible assurance that we can just run to the Lord, right? We can run to the Lord and he is a refuge for his people, It reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 3, verse 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Another psalm, Psalm 91, is also an incredible reminder of the safety found in God. This is my favorite psalm. Does anyone else have a favorite psalm? You can, you know, oftentimes, you know, this is a psalm that I turn to, um, you know, when I'm praying or in a time of hardship or struggle. Um, But this one always, always resonated well with me. Psalm 91. I'll just read the first six verses. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. I love that part, his faithfulness. Because we know his faithfulness, we talked about it earlier, never returns void, right? His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. He will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now I understand we've talked a lot about this coming day of the Lord this morning. It's it's really an unusual message. I haven't really spoken on this before. In this wrath that God will pour out on his enemies. But there's also such encouragement and hope for those who have placed their faith in the Lord. He promises, his promises, excuse me, his promises always prove faithful, right? Again, they never return void. Every promise he has made in scripture, he has come to see it pass. So we know that he is faithful. And I know our tendency can oftentimes be to forget about God and and kind of fight the battles on our own, right? 
the day-to-day life, we, we, we face things and, you know, I can handle this, I can take care of this. This is just a petty little thing. God doesn't need to worry about it. I'll take care of it. But those things can add up. I understand the weight can kind of bear on us. But God promises to be a refuge and a shelter for his people. And we don't need to fight the battle alone. Okay, that's the encouragement this morning. We don't need to fight the battle alone. God's intended design for the church was to come alongside one another for support, for encouragement, to uplift and hold each other accountable and to pray together, to to celebrate each other's victories and to mourn in each other's defeats. That's the purpose of the body of Christ, right? And the purpose of the Lord is that we can come unto him for strength and for protection. And though we've talked about this coming day of the Lord today, of this final battle between the Lord and his enemies, it's important also to remember, guys, that there is a day-to-day spiritual battle going on. Okay, there's a battle every single day raging and waging for the souls of man. And the enemy looks to, as scripture tells us, to steal and kill and destroy. Right? The enemy seeks to bring about division within the body of Christ, division among friends and family, using things like slander and dissension and bitterness, rivalries, all these things that the enemy uses to try to get at us, right? To try to, to, try to get in and just pull at the seams of, of, of fellowship and community of believers. It's important to remember that we can find our covering in Jesus, our refuge and our fortress. It's the Lord who covers us, it tells us, with his wings and is our shield against the attacks of the enemy. So I just want to encourage you, if you're feeling attacked today, if you've been feeling attacked for a long time, right, run to the Lord. <laughs> it's really that simple. I know it sounds like overly simple, but just run to the Lord. Seek shelter in Him. Read His Word. Pray to Him. Call out to Him. Worship Him. Seek shelter in His Word and in His presence. And remember, guys, you're not alone in your fight. Okay, the enemy, that's another tactic the enemy loves to use making us, kind of singling us out, making us feel like we're alone. It kind of reminds me of, have you ever seen like, like um, lions when they attack prey, right? They try to, when they get into those big crowds, they try to single one out and get it on its own. And that's what the enemy tries to do with us as well. And he tries to get us to, to think that we're also alone, but we're not. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can walk in confidence this morning knowing your rescuer has already won the battle and will protect you from the enemy. So I just want to pray this morning as we close right now. I just want to pray for those um, who may feel alone, who may feel attacked, who may feel at their wit's end, who may be emotionally, spiritually, mentally exhausted. I just want to pray for you guys because I, I just want you to know you're not alone in your battle. This battle has been won. We can run and find refuge in the Lord. There's much hope there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, Father, that we can have a hope of assurance, Lord, that your faithfulness is, is always there. It's never going to, to fail, Lord. You've always been faithful. You've proved faithful time and again, and we know that we can hold fast to your word because you are faithful. Lord, I just want to lift up anyone here this morning that may be feeling downtrodden, may be feeling just exhausted, don't know where to turn anymore, just feel alone, empty, Whatever it may be, Lord, I just, God, I just ask that they would recognize where to turn and that your presence would just overwhelm them this morning, that you'd give them a peace that surpasses understanding, a strength 
that they've never felt before, Lord, and a confidence in you, Father. Lord, I just pray that we'd be a people who would turn to you in all times, in the times of calamity and distress, but also in times of, of, of victory and wonder, Lord, that we would just continually be in your presence and in your word, Lord. And I just pray that we would that, that as well, Lord, that we'd be challenged to just study your word continually, Father. That we'd be a nation that would have your word written on our hearts, that we would be able to use scripture in our spiritual battles day to day, Lord. I just thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us and that you are a God of of patience and mercy and grace and relenting from disaster as you showed us in the book of Joel. Lord, I just pray for those who who don't know you, Father, have not placed their faith in you, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself to them in a miraculous and awesome way and that you would just draw them home to you. Lord, I just thank you for everything you've done for us and that you continue to do for us. I just want to lift up this community, Father, and that uh, we would just be examples of salt and light to the people around us, that the day-to-day, that we would see opportunities to love and to serve you and to bring glory to you and to be a light to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.